0: Uh, And so, uh, Mark chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. We continue to walk through uh, Mark verse by verse. Mark 5, starting in verse 35, is where we're going to look at this morning. Last week, I started the sermon by talking a bit about things that, a thing that most of us don't enjoy, and that is being interrupted. We're not people that really enjoy being interrupted. There's a lot of things, if we're honest, that we look at in life that we don't enjoy. I would put on the top of my list, bananas. I do not enjoy bananas. I don't don't like bananas. I don't like the game of golf. I don't like seasonal allergies. There's a number of things on my list of things that I don't enjoy. But one thing that I think might top the list, or be towards the top of the list for a lot of people, especially in America, is that we do not enjoy waiting, do we? We do not like Waiting. We get frustrated when we go to Walmart and we pick the wrong line. And that lady that came in after us picks the right line and she gets done before us. We get frustrated at that. We get frustrated and we don't like to wait for our kids in that long line at school and we're supposed to pick them up and it takes forever. We just don't like waiting. And so we've created, invented all sorts of remedies to ward off this horrible disease of waiting in our culture we don't like waiting for our food, so we made microwaves and McDonald's, right? We don't like waiting for face-to-face communication with somebody, so we invented texting and tweeting, because we, we can do it that way instead. We don't want to wait to buy something, so we invited, invented credit cards and car payments. Like we, we can come up with all sorts of different things that prevent us from having to endure the horrible thing called waiting. That's what makes it really hard for us, in our culture especially, to wait on God. When we pray for things, we expect, whether we would state it or not, we expect and we hope that God would answer us immediately. That God would not delay in any way. Last week we were introduced to an important man. You might remember him. He was a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. A very important man. And he had a very desperate situation. His little daughter was dying. But he knew that Jesus could heal. And so he had enough faith to leave his dying daughter on her sickbed to go find Jesus. He went and found Jesus. Jesus said, I will come with you. And on the journey there, uh, which was a journey in which Jesus was surrounded by a crowd, you'll remember. So he's probably moving slower than he could have on his own. But Jesus stops. As he says, who was that that touched me? And his disciples are kind of looking at him thinking, well, Jesus, there's a crowd. Everybody's touching you. Why would you say that? Jesus had healed a woman. Uh, Most of the time when Jesus healed people, he healed them by him initiating the healing in some way. This time, this lady was healed by just touching his garment, right? But Jesus stops. He could have just kept going, but Jesus stopped. He allowed himself to be interrupted on the way to this very important mission of this dying girl. A little girl who was dying and he stops to converse with an unclean, chronically ill woman whom he had already healed. And so we were kind of left hanging last week wondering, Jesus, why? Why this delay? Why would you do that? That seems like malpractice for the great physician, right? And so, we finish the story this morning in Mark chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. It will be on the screen behind me as well. And as we read God's Word, let's stand together. Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. You can be seated. Imagine, just imagine, put yourself in the shoes of that desperate dad. Desperate enough to leave his sick and dying daughter, leave her bedside to go find Jesus. Jesus says, I will come with, and imagine how, he, how impatient he must have felt. As he's standing there, probably at the front of the crowd, inching his way towards his house as Jesus continues his conversation with this woman whom he'd already healed. Put yourself in his shoes as a dad. Well, come on, he's thinking, let's go. I told you about my daughter. She's already healed, she's taken care of. Tell her you'll come back. Let's go. And then imagine. The horrible pain that this father hears, the words that no father ever wants to hear. Every father probably fears hearing these words as somebody comes to him from his house and says, Your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher any further. It's too late. Jesus delayed too long. I don't even know what you feel in that moment. A ton of grief and sorrow, I'm sure. I don't even know what else he might be feeling. Frustration. Jesus had delayed too long. Jesus didn't act in time. And that which he trusted Jesus to do, he trusted Jesus to heal his sick daughter. And now he just got word that Jesus took too much time talking to this woman and his sick daughter is now dead. Imagine how this man must be feeling. In verse 36, Jesus says something that we might see as kind of strange. Look at verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, so he talks to Jairus, the dad, and he says, Do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And we've seen this thing come up in Mark many times already. This holding up together faith and fear, and holding them really kind of against each other. Remember in chapter 4, verse 40, after the storm, Jesus said to the disciples, remember what he said? Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Okay, So Jesus was taking fear, being afraid, worrying on this one side, and faith on the other side, as though faith and fear were opposites. I don't know what you would call the opposite of fear. Any of us might come up with something other than faith, but it seems that as Jesus talks about those two things, he talks about those two things as opposites. Why are you still afraid? Have you no faith to the disciples? Remember the response of the people after Jesus cast those demons into the pigs and the pigs died? People responded with fear. But what Jesus did is he sent a missionary to them to replace their fear with faith, hopefully. We see it again here. Last week we saw it, I guess, remember, in the woman who had enough faith to touch Jesus' garment, but then she was too fearful to come before him face to face. So she tried to slink her way out through the crowd. And then when she finally came to Jesus, she came with great fear, it says. But then Jesus commends her for her faith. And so we see faith and fear popping up all the time in the Gospel of Mark. Now we see it again. And, and you've got to wonder, like as you read this, is that even fair for Jesus to say to a man who just got news that his daughter died, for him to say to this man, do not fear, only believe. I'm sure he's thinking, believe what, Jesus? I did believe that you could heal her. And you didn't. I thought I had faith, Jesus. Faith, you know, always has an object. You know that, right? A lot of people talk about faith like, oh, my faith got me through this. Well, your faith in what? That's what I always want to ask people when I hear, you know, like, well, my faith will get me through this. Well, it might. But your faith... It really depends on what or who your faith is in. If your faith is in the circumstances, that's a pretty shaky, squishy ground on which to stand, isn't it? That, that if your hope is that your circumstances will change, that's not very solid ground to stand on. But if the object of your faith is not changing circumstances, but the object of your faith is the person of Jesus and His great faithfulness, that's a solid ground to stand on. Right? And so, the object of this man's faith, we don't know for sure, but I think what Jesus is telling him here in verse 36 is, believe in me. Do you believe in me? You, you believe that I could change this circumstance, and I didn't. Was your faith in the changing of the circumstance, or was your faith in me? Right? Jesus wants to be the object of our faith. I've had many opportunities to see this, especially when I was a youth pastor, as I would sit with students to, in, in counseling them. They would have kind of this, this crisis of faith where they had been praying that something would or wouldn't happen, and that thing either did or didn't happen. God didn't answer their prayer. Their faith was in the fact that God, could, God would change that circumstance, and when that circumstance didn't change, they would have kind of a crisis of faith. I'm not sure that I believe in Jesus anymore. They would say something like that because my circumstances didn't change. Right? My desire and my hope is that as a church and as individuals in the church, we would be have a faith so rooted so deeply in the person of Jesus, set so firmly in the God who is always faithful and who is a rock, that even when hard times come, even when God's delays come, we would still trust in Him as the object of our faith. Because He will never change. We can ask the question that Jesus, or not it's not a question, I guess it's a statement that Jesus says to Jairus can be applied pretty immediately to us. Whatever situation it is you're facing in your life right now, you can hear the words of Jesus saying to you, do not fear, only believe. And that's hard, because our circumstances don't change the way we would want them to change, right? We want our kids to love and know Jesus, and they seem to be running away from Him. That's hard. We're sick, and we want to be made well. And we don't get made well. We want to know how things are going to turn out in the future, but instead of becoming more and more clear, it actually gets more and more foggy. We don't like that. But then look at verse 37. Verse 37 says this, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Jesus has a plan. And so he separates himself from the crowd again. Says, crowd, you wait back here. I'm going with just a few people. Picks out his three closest disciples and the father, and they go. Verse 38 says this, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion. There were people weeping and wailing loudly. I would imagine that just before this, there was also a commotion at the house. Those people were trying desperately to keep this little girl alive, but now the commotion looks totally different. They would actually have in this culture professional mourners who would come uh, at a time of mourning for a family, and they would would mourn and weep and wail and, and call out laments, and that maybe is what's happening at this Jewish leader's house. And so there's people gathered around, friends, family, mourners gathered around, weeping and wailing because this little girl has died. She's not just sleeping, she has died. She was sick. Jesus didn't make it in time, and now her mom probably sitting by her bedside, weeping by herself because her husband had left to go find Jesus, and they arrive at the house and this is the scene. And verse 39 says this, And when He had entered, He said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, Jesus is using a euphemism there that the child really was dead. But it, in Jesus' eyes, something even as significant as death can look like something as innocent as sleeping. So he says the child's not dead, but sleeping. And their response look at verse 40 and they laughed at him. think that's ridiculous but Jesus says why don't you go outside mom dad three disciples you're going to stay here with me I want to show you something the waiting is about to be over but before we get to I want to make sure we apply this to us in our situation so before we we see what happens next even though I already read it uh in verse 41 before we get there I want to look here at our own lives and, and how do we respond God's delays how do we respond when we have been praying for something even maybe for a long time we're looking for answers and there's just not answers how do we respond to what we see as God's delays why did Jesus delay here I mean he could have asked the crowd to step aside earlier he could have told the woman why don't you just wait here I'll be back in a couple of hours I need to go heal a sick girl he could have done that Jesus could have healed this girl from where he was he didn't even need to go there Why did Jesus delay? Why allow a father to hear the horrible news that his daughter has died? Why allow all these mourners to gather around this place? Why did Jesus delay here? You know, we don't get a definitive answer right here in this text. But but I see a couple of answers as we look at Scripture. Of why, when we have that question, why does God delay? If you think back to John chapter 11, the story of Lazarus. You remember Lazarus maybe, maybe you remember this, that Lazarus was Jesus' friend. And Jesus is alerted that that, that Lazarus is sick and needs Jesus to come and heal him. But you remember what Jesus does? After he gets that news, he waits two days. He just stays where he is for two days. And then he goes, and by the time he gets there, Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days already. You Remember that? You know what it says in John 11.4 as Jesus explains why? John 11.4 says this. Got it somewhere. Here it is. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's why Lazarus had gotten sick, and that's why Jesus would delay and not come until He would come and then later raise Lazarus from the dead. Why? So that He would be glorified. Sometimes the reason that God will delay things is so that Jesus might be glorified. Okay? Second reason I think we get from Mark, from kind of looking at all these stories together, it doesn't explicitly say it in one of the stories, but I think we see in Mark, as we looked at this juxtaposition of fear and faith that we see all through Mark I think what Mark is trying to do, what the Holy Spirit inspired Mark to do was that was to show us that it is God's desire not only that He be glorified but that as we wait as we see His delays that our faith might grow deeper so two reasons, one that God might be glorified and two that our faith might grow deeper, our faith can grow deeper in times of waiting, in times of God's delay. I think both of those are are certainly true in my own life. It's probably not the way we'd design it if it were up to us, would we? But it's not up to us. And that's good, because we don't know very much. It's up to God, and He knows everything, and so that's good. You may have remembered uh, when we were going uh, through the end of Mark chapter 4. This was back in the spring. I told you a story about a time of uh, some, some trial in our life. It was when Kirsten was pregnant with Mariah. And we were in the hospital for a number of days. And during that time, God greatly encouraged me with the story at the end of chapter 4. The account of Jesus calming the storm. That was very calming to us to help us to trust in God during that stormy time of our life. Well, part of what Kirsten was, was going through at the time, at the end, was she had to have a procedure done. Uh, and, and that procedure was somewhat risky, especially to the health of the baby that she was carrying at the time. And so, I had been reading through the Gospel of Mark, had read that one of those days and was very encouraged by that. And then fittingly, as I was in the waiting room while Kirsten was in surgery, I came to this passage that we read today in the waiting room. And it was a great encouragement to me. And then I was reading a book that kind of was giving me some commentary on it. And as I was reading that book, he was speaking of this passage. And here's what he said. We're going to put the quote up on the screen so you can read it as well. Tim Keller said this, It seemed to Jairus and the disciples that Jesus was delaying for no good reason. But they didn't have all the facts. And so often, if God seems to be inconscionably delaying His grace and committing malpractice in our life, it's because there is some crucial information we don't yet have. We're not God. But we have such delusions of grandeur that our self-righteousness and arrogance sometimes have to be knocked out of our heart by God's delays. It's true, isn't it? That, and I know that's true for me. That I like to think that I'm in control. And so, so I, I live, even though I know God is in control, a lot of times, functionally, I'm living as though I think I'm in control of things. And God sometimes needs to remind Jeremy that, Jeremy, you're not in control of things. And one of the ways that God lovingly, it is lovingly, even though it doesn't feel that way, God lovingly does that to me, Part of the way that He kicks the arrogance out of my heart is by delaying. By causing us to wait. To remind us that we are not in control, but He is. We don't have all the facts, but He does. This is good news. This is encouraging to me at that time. Now, I was talking to, we went to Minnesota for two days this week, and I was talking to my father-in-law, who is a farmer, Uh, And one of the things that he mentioned to me seems to fit with this, and so I quick grabbed my sermon and and wrote a couple extra notes in. He was talking about how, and he learned this from his dad, who was a farmer as well, that they noticed that when, uh, in years when the grass didn't do very well, they ended up with a better crop at the end of the year. When the grass kind of seemed to be a little bit dry and was drying out, they ended up with a better crop at the end of the year. And as they've sought to try and figure out why that was the case, because of the soil type that they have uh, where they live in Minnesota, that that when we have what we would call a good amount of rain, the crop itself doesn't have to send roots very deep into the ground. The soil is very rich and dark and black. And so because of that, because we don't have to wait for the rain, in the end it, it looks good, but in the end the yield isn't as great. The yield is greater in the end in the years in which there's a little bit of a drought. Because in those years, the roots have to go a little bit deeper. And that really illustrates what I think Jesus is trying to get across here in this passage. That as He causes us to wait, as He delays what we want, just as He might delay the rain, uh, when we think, well, it looks like we really need rain, the grass is kind of getting brown. But that He, in the end, is, is producing some, a yield that we maybe can't explain or don't understand as He's causing our roots to dig a little bit deeper in the ground to find what we need. When we trust in Jesus, when the circumstances don't look good, that makes an impact on other people. So, what does Jesus do? That's all about waiting. Now we'll quickly go over the last three verses. Starting in verse 41, we've already seen all through this, Jesus tender and compassionate power, both, okay? He is very powerful, we see that, but he's also very tender and compassionate, right? He wants to speak to this unclean woman. Great power over sickness, great power over demons, great power over nature, all these things that Jesus has great power over, but he also always speaks very tenderly, and here we're going to see Jesus speak incredibly tenderly. Look at verse 41 love how Jesus does this. He goes over and it says, taking her by the hand, this dead, lifeless body laying in a bed, people, her mom standing there mourning her dad, having just seen her for the first time. Jesus walks over to her bedside, takes her little 12-year-old hand in his, and he says to her, and these words are in Aramaic, which was the language Jesus spoke, Talitha kumi, Talitha Kumi, and yours might translate it differently than mine. Interesting choice of words that Jesus makes there. Talitha would have been like a pet name that a mom or dad would have had for their little daughter. I don't know, what. Maybe, maybe those of you that have had a daughter, maybe called them something special. They had their own little unique nickname. I use a number of different things for my girls. I'll call them, uh, you know, sometimes just like, hey, little girl. Uh, or girly, you know, just like use whatever we just we just say something very very calm and uh, um, kind and compassionate and tender. We have words like that that we use, and that's the word that Jesus chooses to use. He goes to this girl, looking into the face of something that most of us are uh, are scared of: death. That's the one thing. We can control a lot of things we feel, but death we just can't control. And Jesus comes up to the very face of death itself, grabs this little girl's hand, and says, basically you could translate this, Honey, time to get up. Talitha Kumi would have been what a a mom or a dad would have said on any morning when they needed to wake their little girl up. They would have just come to her bedroom and said, Talitha Kumi, little girl, honey, get up. That's it. Jesus didn't use any big, strong, powerful type words. He simply said, hey honey, time to get up to a dead girl. That's what Jesus did. He comes and he speaks to her in that way. It's such an encouragement to me. Verses 42 and 43 then, we see the effect of this. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. I mean, this was immediate. She didn't rub her eyes. She didn't stretch. She just, alright. I was dead, but if Jesus says to get up, I'm getting up. And this little girl who was dead, really dead. Okay, Moments before this, her heart was not beating. There was not blood flowing through her veins. Her brain didn't have any activity. There was no pulse. Okay, This girl was dead. Moments later, because Jesus held her hand and said, honey, time to get up. This dead girl is risen from the dead. Stands up Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and that's what 12-year-olds do. They walk, and the people were immediately overcome with amazement. And again, it says he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Again, remember Jesus is back in this region where it would be, uh, a hindrance to his ministry if everybody... Now, people are going to know. They were all outside, right? Wailing and mourning because this girl was dead, and now she's walking around. But Jesus wants it to be as quiet as possible. And he told them, love this practical concern of Jesus. Hey, she's been dead for a little bit. She's probably hungry, right? Give her something to eat. Takes a lot out of you. Um, And so, uh, I just, I love it. Here's a couple of things that I think this story means for us. We've already talked about what it means for us as we wait for God. But first, I, I can think of two things. One, we ought to pray and ask Jesus to bring new life to those who are spiritually dead. We ought to pray and ask Jesus to bring spiritual, new life to those who are spiritually dead. This girl was too sick to come to Jesus and eventually she was dead. She could do nothing but by God's grace, her father intervened for her and went and found Jesus. We need to, on behalf of those who we know and love, who are lost, who do not believe in Jesus, who are, Scripture says, spiritually dead, we need to come to Jesus on their behalf, praying for their salvation. That He might come and bring new life. I think certainly that's one way that we can apply this passage. And the second one is this. We must never forget that Jesus is still into raising people from the dead. Jesus is still powerful. We've had a number of stories in a row to just see Jesus' great power. He is powerful over nature and storms. Nature and storms are calmed by His command. Jesus is powerful over evil and demons. They still flee in His presence. Jesus is powerful over sickness. People are still healed by Jesus' touch. Jesus is powerful over death. And He still raises people from the dead. We who are in Christ have this great hope. I'm going to close by just taking you to a couple of other passages and just reading to you some other Scripture that applies this truth to our lives. Listen to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 39 and 40. Here's what God's Word says. And this is the will. This is Jesus speaking. This is the will of Him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but will raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is still into raising people from the dead. Or you could look at the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, but I'm going to read just a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. And then, because of our hope in Christ, here's what Paul says we can say. And this is only for those who are in Christ. For those who are not in Christ, we cannot look at death and be unafraid. But for those of us who are in Christ, we can look at death and be unafraid and say, as Paul did, O oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. One more. John chapter 11 verse 25. In John 11:25 Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live question for you this morning is, are you living with the hope of eternal life? On what do you base your hope that everybody thinks they're going to heaven? We we like to think that, so everybody thinks that. But on what are you basing that hope? On what are you basing the hope that death does not lead to eternal punishment for you, but that death might lead to eternal life for you? On what are you basing that hope? you come into to church often enough. You're thinking you're coming to church often enough. You're thinking you're trying hard enough to be good enough. And on that you're basing your hope that your death will not end in death and punishment, but your death will end in eternal life. That's not good enough. All that our works are good enough to do is to earn us a place in hell. They're not good enough to earn us a place in heaven. That's been accomplished already by Jesus. He has done enough. He alone has done enough to earn us a place in heaven. And we receive that gift from Him, that hope from Him, by simply turning from our sin and trusting in Him. Trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And if you have not done that, that's my desire that you would do that. Because I don't want you to have to face death apart from the hope that we have in Christ alone. Earlier we sang, the song. This is for all of us who believe. Did, did you maybe even get goosebumps as we sang the song about Jesus paying it all with that added little chorus as we sang, Oh, praise the One who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. This has happened to me. By God's grace, through my faith in Christ, I was dead and now I am alive. Jesus is still into raising people from the dead. And if He has done that in your life, that ought to cause you to say, oh, praise the One who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead.